Welcome to A Little Bit Radical, a business podcast from Standing on Giants. I'm Rob, your host. Join me as I meet people and organisations who are doing things differently, challenging the status quo and yes, might just be a little bit radical. Picture yourself in your local pub. The bartender hands you a pint of ice cold beer. You take a sip, and for every sip you take, you provide a hundred times that amount of clean drinking water to those who need it most. This is exactly the concept behind Brugada, a craft beer that uses its profits to fund clean water and community projects around the world. So far, Brugada drinkers have funded over 100 million litres of clean drinking water. They're a certified B Corp, and in fact were named one of B Corp's best for the world companies in 2022, putting them in the top 5% of impact-driven companies globally. What's more, their beer is absolutely delicious, and I'm personally a very big fan, so I'm thrilled to be joined today by Alan Mayen, founder and executive chair of Brugada. Alan, welcome to A Little Bit Radical. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really excited to chat to you today. Your intro just put me in a, a nice pub with a, a nice warm fire, so thanks for that little bit of imagination at the start. Oh, it's a great place to be, isn't it? Especially as we're recording around Christmas, so uh, there's no better place to be. Before we kick off with the interview, those kind of stats that I read out in that intro, 100 million litres of clean drinking water provided around the world from your community of beer drinkers and your beer, how does that make you feel? Yeah, it makes me feel great, to be honest with you, that people have engaged with what we do in such a you know, powerful, long-lasting way, especially with people that will never really be able to thank them, if that makes sense. You know, one of the reasons we we go to the pub and we drink beer for many reasons, and I don't think many people consider doing an act of kindness or an act of charity or an act of empowerment to be sort of high up those, that, that list, that hierarchy, if you like, of decision-making when it comes to, to, to having a pint. But I feel through what we've done that we're making empowerment through beer kind of if not normal then at least something that's increasingly becoming accepted and and hopefully becomes demanded by drinkers so we're probably still in those early stages you know 100 million plus liters of water is great but we've made commitments to our charity partners to get that from 100 million to a billion in the next few years so that means a lot more people drinking it and a lot more beer being sold but yeah, so far so good, but we've still got a long way to go. It's a theme with uh, the people that I've been interviewing for this podcast, Alan, that you know, the work is never done. Though it's all very well to be, like you say, at the start of a little bit of a radical journey, but the work is the work is never done. The job of um, changing the status quo is never done. So I'm going to kick off with the first formal question of the interview now, which is that if you are a little bit radical, because you're on this podcast, we've already decided that you are. What do you think in your early life set you up for that? Yeah, I've been called lots of things. I'm not. I'm trying to scratch my head as the last time I've been called radical. But yeah, I guess that, that does sort of chime a little bit with me. I guess, I guess for me, what, you know, if you're talking about early events or anything that happened in my life, I, I don't want to start on too sad or bleak a note. But you know, when I was younger, my, my dad passed away quite early. Um, and my mum sort of took on lots of work to I guess give us a standard of life that she expected that we should have had should there have been both parents and I kind of speak to that because of the type of work that she did and the type of person that she kind of was or is I guess she was working in the NHS she was working in different 
you know, caring professions. And for me, I grew up with this woman that, you know, I grew to sort of idolize who was always doing stuff for other people. Even when she had spare time, she was always kind of volunteering, helping relatives, helping people. You know, she would take care of, of, of children with autism for respite care. She would work with old people. She just seemed to have this remarkable capacity to give. So when I started to imagine my career, you know, it was really all about the the sort of giving. I always grew up, not necessarily giving, but, you know, using your skills or your talents to help other people and get satisfaction from that. So I, I guess that's probably the, the big scene setter. But that never really translated into anything I guess until much later in life. So when I was 22, I went traveling after university. I kind of got to the end of a four-year university career with lots of memories, but not much on my CV, which I'm sure a lot of listeners might have uh, had a similar sort of journey. But I got I got to the end of that process and I thought, you know, what can I do that I would enjoy, but that would also help me get into, you know, a career or profession or, or sort of field that I really enjoyed. And I think that's where the intersection of my own interests and I guess the way I was sort of brought up and exposed to the working world from my mum kind of like, you know, crossed over. I wanted to help people, you know, I volunteered in Nepal, went traveling for, for three months, did what everyone tells you not to do, and that's to drink a water source that you don't know the, the sort of origins of. If you can't crack it or chlorinate it, then, you know, you should probably stay away. But I was 22, I didn't really have you know, a fear for, for anything really, let alone getting on well. But I did, I contracted a parasite. I came back home, got some tests done, got a really easy prescription for metronidazole. And within a week I was sort of back to normal. So that moment, I think is probably the start of, for me, the, the sort of radical part of the journey. And that I came back as a 22 year old from an experience which some people who were born the exact same day as me might not have made it past their fifth birthday by, you know, that happening. And I kind of thought that that was a little bit of an injustice. I had never worried about water. I'd never worried about anything other than really kind of, you know, what was the next thing for me? What was the next aspiration, the next dream that I could go after, you know, go to uni, get a job, all that sort of stuff. And I guess that that propelled me into I guess looking for a career in international development you know for first of all and I applied for the Department of International Development's grad scheme spent a year sort of applying for that was up against some really talented people and got rejected and and that that time that was quite a blow for me in terms of you know wow I've put my sort of heart and soul into to something and it's not come to fruition you know what's the next step and then meeting my sort of first job or my first employer by accident at the Edinburgh Festival, a guy called Josh who said, do you want to come and work at my sandwich shop was probably the next step on, on the ladder to Brugger. You know, it was a sandwich shop, which was, you know, really tiny, you know, wasn't particularly attractive to a young graduate who, who just left university, but they offered homeless people a chance to have hot food and drinks paid for by somebody else. And then that developed into employment and, when I was given that chance by somebody else to, to go on that journey, I absolutely loved it. And I guess without anticipating or, or taking up too much of the, the chat, you know, how that lent into to Brugger was really by being going from a poor student to a, a sort of poor graduate. You know, I got a wee bit more money so I could buy better coffee and better beer. And I kind of fell in love with the notion that, you know, you could build a, a brand like Social Bite where 
we eventually went on to build houses quite literally for homeless and vulnerable people that actually that journey could be put into something which I loved in terms of an industry, which was beer. Uh, and then something I really cared about passionately, which was clean drinking water. So I guess there's probably a few steps along my early life. I'm still only 32, so it's, hopefully it's still early-ish. But, you know, by the time of 25 years old, having the idea for Brugger, those three things probably intersected to, to create what, you know, the brand is today. Fantastic. So much in there, Alan. Thank you for sharing so candidly. Really appreciate it. And again, a running theme on this podcast seems to be experiencing change or disruption or, you know, terrible challenges like you faced at an early point, which kind of seems to be with with our guests that tends to build a resilience or at least an awareness that, you know, challenges can be overcome, you know. And then the the second point that really jumped out to me was your your openness to experience. And that seems to be a theme as well with being a little bit radical with doing things a little bit differently. Just being open to experiencing that to start with seems very key. And so for any listeners who are looking to, uh, you know, be a little bit more more radical, embracing that openness and um, that curiosity, that natural curiosity to how things are done differently or could be done differently, I think is um, I think is incredibly relevant and uh, seems to be in your story there. As you mentioned, you're not that old at the moment, <laughs> only 32. But as an ad- adult, do you find that you've become more radical than you were as a young person? It's weird. Like sometimes I, when you do podcasts, you actually find like they're quite like a therapy session. You're like asked questions. You're like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Am I, you know, challenging my own thoughts on it? I would say... <sighs> I would say I was quite idealistic when I was younger. Like, I don't think anybody who wasn't idealistic could have, you know, started a business like Brugger, for example, without having that hopeless, not hopeless, hopeful uh, naivety almost within it. I would say that the past six years of, of this journey have definitely, definitely taught me, particularly as we've taken on more and more staff or partners in, in the journey to be a bit less risky, if you like. When we started Brugger, I was definitely very idealistic, very radical, you know, wanting to come into an industry that I didn't really know anything about. Like I can definitely hold my hands up and say I was probably the most amateur of the novices back in 2016. But actually what that did was almost give me license to kind of be as radical, if you like, as possible. We set off with a target to you know, impact a million people's lives. That hasn't changed. How we're going to get there has definitely been through various different peaks, troughs, and, and changes in direction. But ultimately, I think that whatever inspired me to be a little bit crazy back then still is with me to a large extent. It's just how I apply all the stuff that I've learned to get us there is definitely more systematic, definitely almost an informed idealism versus a sort of recklessness of just putting myself out there and doing it. When I think of how terrifyingly scary the first four years maybe of this journey have been, and we're only you know approaching seven years old, if I apply my own psychology now to the series of decisions that I made when I was 25, 26, I probably wouldn't take them now, if that makes sense. Like I probably wouldn't advise somebody to go on the same journey that I did, but, you know, I'm very thankful to my younger self for having that just sheer stubbornness of, of, of doing it because now I, I have a 
job and a career that I love. I work with people that, you know, energize me every single day and week by week, quarter by quarter, year by year, I start to see that, you know, actually come to fruition now. So there's probably less idealism and more realism, but that realism is applied to a world that has been created for me by my younger and, and probably more radical self. So ho- hopefully that, that explains where I'm kind of sitting at now versus when I was, was 25 or 26. Definitely. I love the term hopeful naivety and really interesting how you are characterizing your journey and splitting splitting yourself into two two people almost the kind of the hopeful naive very radical founder and now perhaps the slightly more realistic as you said pragmatic leader so you were talking about your time when you were first founding the business and the decisions you were making and that if you looked back you're not sure you would make them the same way now if you were able at that time to take the decisions how you would do them now with the benefit of your increased pragmatism and perspective and everything do you think that your business would be as successful or do you think you needed that recklessness to use your word to just get the thing going yeah i i think so i think what is the value in what the Brugger brand stands for now versus a more clinical and reasoned approach is kind of that authenticity like we started for a very specific reason We've went in various directions and and grown in various different ways. But in many respects, I think what gained us the initial interest or at least curiosity of people was that we stood up and said, we want to do something very, very different from the mainstream, even of the craft beer industry. You know, most people in 2016 would have started a beer brand because they wanted to make better beer or you know, they, they didn't think there was enough good beer out there in the market. And and we we were almost energized by the fact that there was the ability to make great beer, but that wasn't why we started this brand. We looked at beer as a category that people got excited by, particularly young men got excited by. And I think that the opportunity to transform the behavior of of, of young men into into acts of kindness is quite radical in, in that respect. And quite subversive almost. And I think going out with that that level of, of commitment to that purpose definitely was ahead of its time. I think now if you look at the beer industry, there's a lot more focus on purpose, whether it's finding purpose, whether it's communicating purpose or marketing purpose. For us, it wasn't really, we didn't call it purpose. We just called it the reason why we kind of got out of bed. And, and I guess that is. And if you look at the passage of time and the the things that we've been through, particularly COVID, we were always on that end of the spectrum of of people who wanted to make a positive change in the world, even if it was relatively small or even if it never came fully to the fruition that we have in our head, we were always moving forward incrementally to hopefully a, a better world or more people empowered. But if you look at the market now, actually purpose is, is a really hot issue. And, and if anything, we arrived four years too early <laughs> and now people are kind of catching up with us. And I think that that's put us in a bit of a slipstream, which I think, you know, if I was planning out the business, you know, today with my psychology today versus, you know, in, in, in 2015, 2016, we wouldn't have taken as many risks. We would have probably done it in a way that was more be your first purpose second, but actually 
we now get to retrofit the beer almost if you like and, and that journey to to the purpose versus the other way around so if anything we're beer washing right now rather than rather than the green washing that everyone seems to have on their lips I love the term beer washing. Sign me up for that. That's <laughs> that's great. I want to pick up actually on what you said. I think really well articulated that you were ahead of your time in being a purpose-led business, purpose-led brand. And I know I've been in several conversations where you know people have brought you up as an example of a purpose-led brand, completely unprompted by by me or someone else who knows you very well. We have some examples now where very large brands, very established brands are trying to almost do it the other way around, retrofit purpose mm-hmm. onto their product and actually coming in for some, you know, a bit of criticism and a lot of it probably fair, but a bit of derision as well. The example that springs to mind is is Hellman's and, and Unilever receiving a, a message from one of their big uh, shareholder groups saying, you know, we don't need to know the purpose of Hellman's mayonnaise. You know, it's been the same for 100 years or, or whatever. What's your take on that? Should we be embracing any brand trying to be purpose-led? Or is there something else that needs to change there before it can really work? I want to kind of pick up on your first bit first. And it's great to hear that people are, are using Brugger as an example. Like, I'm not a guru. When I say that we were ahead of our time, I mean, we are completely here by accident, right? Like, <laughs> I'm not saying it was part of the master plan in any respect or this was a calculated move or we saw a trend. We, I just did what I thought was a great thing that I wanted to do, right? And it's so idiosyncratic, you know, guy who is 25, who loves beer, uh, but who also wants to change the world, puts the two things together, right? It's it's almost, you know, it's, it's laughably idiosyncratic in that respect. So it's great, though, that there's something in that that other people can take value from. When it comes to, I guess, the larger part of the question is purpose, right? I think it probably speaks to the angst of, you know, whether it's a Hellman's or whether it's, you know, Joe Blogs on the street. You know, we all kind of live in an age now where we want to feel the meaning of things, of life, you know, from a very basic level up to, if you extrapolate that into a brand, of course, Helens want to find their purpose. The role to which that means anything to anybody other than the team at Helens is, is definitely up for debate. I think it's a good thing. It's an unqualified good thing that people want to be doing the right thing where they can a company of the size of Hellman's or an other company that has the opportunity to either find what they think is authentically their purpose and communicate that out to to consumers that allows them to think about things differently, to have a positive change. The aggregating factor of having so many businesses, large and small, doing that is just an unqualified good thing. I think where it starts to break down is the extent to which people think that they're being conned by it. So, you know, is that genuine? Is it authentic? Is it something that they value and hold dear and is intrinsic to the brand? Or is it something that's to sell more of product X or Y? And I don't think I can answer that question meaningfully. I think it's in the heart of every consumer to judge whether or not they're being communicated to authentically. And if brands are people, everyone has people in their lives that they they can see through or that they can trust implicitly or whatever and i think that that that's up for lots of individual consumers to make that judgment but the aggregate comes out right you know if people don't trust that if enough people don't trust that then that brand won't come across as as trustworthy from that purpose point of view 
but I would be an advocate of each company, you know, consumer facing brand or, you know, otherwise to take on the responsibility of doing the right thing, whether that needs to be a huge marketing campaign or not is, is probably one for those companies to decide. And then the authenticity and the cut through of that is for the consumer to decide. I think you're right. And I think authenticity is the key word. And I often use the phrase walk the talk and brands have become experts at talking about themselves. And this is where all the angst around greenwashing comes, right? What they ultimately mean is people talking and not doing. So that brings me on to B Corp. And we are, we're both fellow B Corps. You have been a B Corp for how long? Um, since August 2018, so four years. It Probably the journey for application started a little bit before that, but it's quite a long process. So yeah, for four years and, and hopefully for, for many, many more. I've always seen B Corp ultimately as a way to walk the talk, as I say, to prove that you are doing something as well as saying something. And uh, this movement has grown to a thousand companies in the UK, which is awesome. But we're, I feel, kind of at a, a bit of an inflection point where, again, the movement is kind of coming in for a bit of bit of criticism. At the time of recording, uh, BrewDog have just had their status removed based on a, an investigation into some of their working practices, which were found to not be in line with the, with the B Corp standards. The first meat company became a B Corp. What's your take on the B Corp movement? Obviously, you've said it's an unqualified good thing to have more businesses doing the right thing. What do you see as the kind of the future of this movement? Could every company be a B Corp? In a word, yes, right? There are obviously challenges within any movement as it grows, right? Early adopters embrace it. They're skeptical onlookers. The skeptical onlookers might, you know, want to scratch away at the surface of this shiny thing that people are talking about. I think that's you know true of various different movements or agendas or you know any cluster of people that, that rally around a cause. I think it's open for criticism. And I mean open in the most honest sense of the word. I think if we don't take on board as B Corps the legitimate criticisms or the legitimate questions that people have then we wouldn't even be able to learn and grow ourselves if that makes sense i know that's quite a philosophical way to put it and, and maybe isn't as contentious a question an answer as some people might like but you know if people have concerns we should take them on board we shouldn't defend and live and die by just being a b corp and it must be you know the best thing and any criticism is unwarranted actually criticism helps us grow and develop and, and probably take learnings Meat companies being B Corps, you know, I get that people would say that, you know, potentially that is a destructive business model, but it's a business model and it's a way of life that most people on the planet probably, or in, at least in Western developed countries also is part of their lifestyle. Um, and I guess you can't solve crises like the Western developed addiction to meat without actually including them in the conversation and to ban people outright or to raise eyebrows every time somebody big joins the the movement is valid definitely but it's also you know what are we trying to do here are we trying to be an exclusive club or are we trying to grow what we think the way to do business should be and and how many people need to be in that conversation for that to actually hit a critical mass when you ask can anyone be a b corp yeah i would almost want to get to the stage and i know this is definitely you know 
a version of what what B Corp want themselves is that when you register a company, you should have to adopt the principles of B Corp, right? You know, whether that's next year or within the next 10 years, a part of starting a business is the endorsement of, I said the endorsement, is the realization that you have a role to play in the ethical and environmental and community well-being of your society. And I think that, yes, I would love to get to the point where B Corps are the rule and not the exception, but right now we're in a position where they're the exception and not the rule. And I think the reason I've joined this movement and, and believe in it so much is because it should become the norm. Absolutely. I happen to share that view. You used exclusive club. I think it's really important that we don't become a cult and just pedal, you know, in a quite <laughs> yeah. culty way and exclude people, uh, you know, who aren't, you know, aren't a member of a member of the cult. And I see a lot of the criticism kind of being leveled as if it is a little bit culty. But I don't think having spoken to lots of the businesses, founders, leaders within this movement, everyone, I think, is on board, very open to criticism and open to dialogue. That's where I'd like to take our conversation, actually. So when we're under this sort of umbrella of collaboration and the kind of collaborative model that you've brought into the business at, at Brugada, that notion of accepting uh, feedback, improving, relying on partners, collaborating. So I believe, am I right in saying that you don't have your own brewery? You rely on partner um, brewers to create your beer. Is that right? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, not necessarily create the beer. So the beers are always our sort of recipes, if you like. I guess the rationale behind that is probably twofold. One, there is enough spare capacity in the UK brewing market to justify our volume not needing its own brewing capacity, just from a logical point of view. I guess the second bit is that, you know, to build a, to go from a garden shed to a industrial unit, to a double industrial unit, to a big brewery would actually be relatively carbon intensive versus that alternative, which is that leaner supply model. So from our point of view, we work with a number of different breweries. We've probably worked with, I would imagine, you know, the majority of the top 20 breweries in the UK with, with, with some exceptions for various different reasons. But ultimately, you know, some of our partners are not in that community of B Corps in the sense that, you know, they haven't maybe got the the right skill sets within the team or even it's not their focus necessarily to, to join that movement. And I think one of the really big things that we'd love to do is to bring other people on that journey. And maybe they are participating in the wider if you like, push towards sustainability by being our partners. But you know, we've got people in Scotland, Williams Brothers, Fierce, who definitely, definitely subscribe and believe the same things that we do, but maybe are just a wee bit behind on that journey. Whereas there's, you know, other partners in Curious and Kent, for example, who are absolutely, you know, environmentally speaking, impeccable in terms of the, the sort of work that they do to reduce water inputs into beer, which is a huge thing. But ultimately, they haven't formalized that in, in any way or they haven't put that for external recognition. So, yeah, we work, I guess, largely to collaborate with others, to bring people on the journey with us and f hopefully to make them more efficient businesses, but also to only use carbon and electricity and energy and power when we come to the point of brewing. And I think that's really, really important for us because we're in the middle of, I guess, articulating what our environmental policy is if you like and rather than just the community empowerment aspect of it what is actually our you know long-term 
contribution to a more sustainable beer industry and, and that's evolving but we know it's rooted in that notion of making partnerships work to reduce the carbon intensity of, of what we do absolutely i feel like there must be a number of benefits uh, to you working in that collaborative way has it had any challenges though because i think maybe traditional business would say your manufacturing you need a walled garden where you can control every aspect of what's happening in in that supply chain in that process in that brew has it had challenges along those lines i kind of want to also say that that's not a new thing as well what we do is not is not strictly novel to us i think you'd be amazed that the sort of beer that you may or may not have drank recently is probably to some extent done under a model like that so you know there are obviously world beer brands that are, are brewed in the uk in fact they say in there when they're selling you some sort of mediterranean lifestyle they also say brewed in the uk so that works in the same basis there are you know small craft brands that you know take advantage of of scale when it comes to working with contract partners so i don't want anyone to walk away thinking that what we're doing is too unique in that respect the extent to which we lean into it is probably the radical bit right the bit that works with various different people to to produce brew streams but you know We've always maintained that we want to work with best-in-class producers, people that you would find in your local bar, in your local supermarket. We know that quality will obviously, in that model, will be a concern for the drinker or the, the buyer, but the beer sort of speaks for itself. It's accessible, it's high quality, it's increasingly winning awards, you know, great taste award winner of, you know, Session IPA, our Session IPA is is a three-star winner, right? And lots of, lots and lots of consumer FMCG brands, you know, have one star and that's a, a badge of honor. 0.5% of, of beers get, or sorry, of, of all products entered get three stars. So I think we've made definitely quality an internal metric around production. And it's now time for us to start telling that quality story to, to people outside of the business, if that makes sense, and, and outside of, you know, the beer buyer of a, of a retailer or a pub. And I think that will be the bit where we kind of do the three-card trick of this is a better way to do it. It means that we get to work with people. We get to brew amazing beer and we get to have the lowest possible carbon impact that, that we can. Absolutely. I think you nailed it. And you said the little bit radical bit was deciding to expose that to your drinkers and saying, hey, look at all the amazing partners that we work with and collaborate with to create this for you, rather than kind of keeping it under the surface, which it feels like the traditional industry, kind of it's all sort of hidden from the from the consumer a little bit. Yeah, for different reasons, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not certainly trying to out anybody either. People have hierarchies of communication, but for us, it's just not something that we want to try and shy away from i guess in, in many respects but who knows there might be a, a burger brewery it might actually make sense the other way right they might we might do the calculations and say actually if we did this in one place right in the middle of the of the uk that actually might be better but i think what it allows us to do is to go in eyes open to other markets so i don't think it's any secret that i think that burger could exist as a international brand i think anywhere where people like beer and it's a you know, part of the social fabric of, of, of countries and of cultures, but also understand better ways of doing business. I think it can it can definitely fit into different territories, California, New York come to mind, Sweden, you know, Australia. And it would kind of be a bit remiss for us to continue to say, well, actually we need to brew it in, 
you know, Oxfordshire, because of this, our relationship with this brewery, actually, would it not be better to be brewed in that territory so that, you know, the least amount of environmental damage is done there? But also, it's a, it's a pretty powerful thing, right? The, the brand and the beer that's empowering people, um, either in local communities or internationally, is brewed as close to you as possible. And I think that's definitely not without its challenges. But if we are open and honest about it now, then we can be hopefully set up for expansion in the future. I feel like that's a good point to bring the professional and work section of, of our interview to an end, hearing about the future plans for Brugada and Brugada all over the world, which would be incredibly exciting. The final part of uh, our podcast is always we kind of try and lift ourselves out of the day-to-day. Obviously, in your day-to-day, you are so involved in uh, projects that have an impact outside your own business and outside your own immediate society and community. But what change would you like to see in the world that you, at the moment, don't see yourself personally having an impact on? I would love to see, let's just say, the next generation of people who go into school from you know today, right? for this year or next year is them to be educated as much in their own awareness of their mental health, their value intrinsically as a person versus the functional learning of English and maths and science and passing exams to get a job to, or to go to uni to get a job and to climb a career ladder. Like I've been, I wouldn't say necessarily. I've I've known people that you wouldn't have expected to have lost, you know, all the way through to people who've really still struggle with with mental health into adulthood. And I think that I've had my own struggles with mental health, definitely as a student, for various different reasons. And I think that I was never taught. When I look back at it, I was never taught how to explain even to myself what I'm thinking. And I think that. I, I still, in that same breath, feel lucky that I grew up in the loving family environment that allowed me to probably handle my emotional well-being more than others. But there are people, you know, particularly young men, who I guess are are not that equipped or haven't been taught. And I think that's a massive shame. The challenges of mental health and, and all the things that come to that for, for young men in particular are really significant and really meaningful. And, you know, not just to people's own happiness, to, you know, families, but also economically to communities, right? Like, you know, happy, flourishing people are what we should probably focus on more than anything else. And Maybe that starts with just how we educate our young people, how we teach them to look after themselves and others, I think would just transform the world. And maybe that would start to filter into stuff like gross national happiness versus gross domestic product. You know, we all talk about growth and all these economic things that actually don't really tend to make us happier as, as individuals. And I think maybe if we educated a whole generation of people, even as an experiment, and said, right, we're going to focus on different priorities. You know, how would that filter through that when they're the decision makers in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, how would the world change around them to, to be somewhere where, you know, we live more sustainably, we live happily, you know, we don't have the, the challenges that we currently face from climate change through to, you know, worse. Would that make a meaningful difference? And I know that's quite a big ask. It's basically asking for world peace. But 
if that world peace can be found, it has to be found within the inner peace of people who are emotionally as intelligent as they are from an IQ point of view. I love it. Sign me up, Alan. Actually, as you were talking, I was just thinking about, I think it's Bhutan that measures gross domestic happiness over gross domestic product. And then you mentioned it. So yeah, I've spoken about previously on this podcast and elsewhere about in the workplace, this whole topic seems to be taking hold in a way that it never has before. And I think businesses are recognizing that there's kind of a well-being windfall to be had. Happy, engaged employees perform better. You know, it's actually going to improve the performance of your business. But I love your even more radical idea to introduce this in schools, you know, and in how that could affect, you know, talent development. And I imagine would feed into things like helping us solve the social care crisis that we have in this country if young people weren't just kind of funneled down this very narrow idea of what success and progression means but actually you can explore a wealth of things with a focus on your own happiness and your own fulfillment i think it would have the kind of impacts that you're uh, talking about there so yeah i'm signed up thank you so much me and you we'll, we'll go out with the petition tomorrow yeah absolutely yeah so we're coming to the uh, end of our uh, conversation now it's been absolutely fascinating to speak to you thank you so much for your candor your honesty and the detail of your answers The uh, last question is always the same, and it's one for our listeners. So if there's someone listening here who has an idea that's a little bit radical, whether for their personal life or for their work or for a business idea, whatever it may be, what advice would you give to that person? I thought really hard about this. Actually, at the start of the year, I tried to write a little bit of a book that kind of gives these types of um, things from a purpose point of view. So hopefully at some point or other, People can read this in black and white. The exercise I wish I had done was to break the business model of your idea before you started it. Okay, so it's a bit of a complicated one, but if you have a business and you start to write it down, you can fall in love with how amazing it is and you don't actually think of the challenges that that come from it. And what I'd love someone to do is think, you know, I've got this idea, I've got this business, how can I break it? And if you can break it in your own head, then suddenly you almost overcome, I guess, in the process, the notion that failure can happen. And I think that people going into ideas have to understand that failure can happen, and that's not a bad thing. That's an opportunity for growth. But also it makes your idea and business you know, potentially much, much stronger because you've already broken it, and now you can fix it before you've even started. So in terms of energy management, it's definitely you know puts you ahead of the curve. So break your idea and then once you've broken it fix it and then get out there and do it i love it put yourself out of business before you've started i love that (laughs) pretty much thank you very much alan it's been a fantastic conversation good luck with the next year of brugada i'm sure you're going to go from strength to strength and i'll speak to you again soon thank you for listening to this podcast if you enjoyed it please follow us on your podcast platform If you'd like to appear on A Little Bit Radical or have an idea of someone we should speak to, please email podcast at standingongiants.com or get in touch with me on LinkedIn. You can search Rob Fawkes or search Standing on Giants and you'll find me there. Thank you very much and speak to you next time. (laughs) 